You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. We're so grateful that you are here as our guest. Maybe you're watching online for the first time. Thank you for joining us. And if you haven't had the opportunity uh, to stop by one of the welcome tables, uh, I hope you'll do that on your way out. Or you can text the word CONNECT uh, to the number that is going to be on the screen, and one of our CONNECT team members will follow up with you this week, and they'd love to answer any questions uh, that you might have I want to remind you as well that today is uh, Discover Bayshore. This takes place just about every month. It's a lunch at 1215 following our 11 o'clock worship gathering and life group hour. And uh, you can hear from some of the leaders of our church, hear about the vision of our church, and ask any questions that you might have. Uh, If you're interested in knowing more about our church, please join us today at 1215. If you are thinking about becoming a member of our church, this is the first step in the membership process as well. And then I wanna encourage everyone, if you can, be here tonight at five o'clock for Vision Night. If you are a charismatic, uh, it's not that kind of vision. Uh, It's where we just celebrate uh, what God has done in the life of our church, uh, focusing focusing in on the last year, but really uh, what he's been doing leading up until this point. And uh, we have some great, exciting announcements to share, and we uh, are going to talk about what we believe the Lord is doing uh, in and through us as we look to the future. And so I hope you'll be here. Uh, Afterwards, there will be a reception. Uh, So if you're new, you can get a free lunch and you can get, I don't know if it's dinner or not, but they're getting food for free tonight. Well, tonight we do celebrate many great things that God has done in our church, and we're going to share some big things we think God is leading us to do in the future. And as we plan to talk about these things related to our vision, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, the passage we are about to read, if you want to turn there, may seem like a strange one to focus on on a day like today. You might think, I'd probably go with something about building something big or some passage about how God is able or just not a passage that talks about opposition and fear and conflict and suffering. But I think Philippians 1, verse 27 through 30 is a fitting place for us to be this morning for two reasons. The first is that it's what's next and we're going through Philippians chapter one. So that's a good reason. Uh, The second is that it really does capture the tension we will face in life in general, which seems to be heightened when we attempt to live for God, when we attempt great things for God. God has a vision for your life. It's universal to all of us and yet unique to each of us. There are, however, many competing visions for your and my life, clothed in success, clothed in security, clothed in pleasure, clothed in admiration, community, and even religion. And we need to resolve that we are going to trust in God's vision, God's direction, God's will for our life. It is truly a worthy vision for our life 
and it should be our brand. We should be known as people that trust in the Lord with all of our heart. This is where Paul is coming from when he is writing to the Philippians. Let's read some of what he has to say to them and then let's talk about living it out. Philippians chapter one, verse 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, may I hear of you, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you have saw, that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. May God bless the reading of his word. So far in this letter, Paul has written about his life, specifically his current situation where he has been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And he's writing from prison to encourage the Philippian church on how God is using his trial to advance the gospel. Paul says that he's okay with what he is going through because for him to live as Christ, to die is gain. Paul says that he's okay with dying, but feels that God wants him to continue to live for the sake of others, including the Philippians. But notice, Paul makes a request of the Philippians. Verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Manner of life could be translated as conduct. It, it is translated as conduct in many translations. I do think it's worth mentioning that in the King James Version, the translation is your conversations, and that's just a bad translation of the Greek. Paul is saying the way you live your life should be worthy. Worthy means appropriate or fitting. Worthy or fitting of what? Of the gospel of Christ. Now, to be clear, what Paul is not saying is live worthy to get the gospel of Christ. He is not saying if you do enough or don't do, you can then get Jesus and all the things you think come with him. The gospel message is that we are not worthy. In Romans chapter five, verse eight through 10, Paul says, God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to say that God reconciled us while we were still enemies with God. A little while ago, I was having a conversation with a friend who was hurt in Afghanistan as he served with the army in uh, Afghanistan during the conflict over there. And we were talking about at the time a, a video that had come on the news just a little bit before we had lunch of people stepping on the American flag. And I said to him, because I felt like I owed it to him because of the fact that his body had been physically impaired, mentally he had struggles because of what he had done for my freedom. I said, I am so sorry. And he said, it's okay. I went through this so that they could have the freedom to do this. This guy said, while he certainly hopes that these people's mentality about freedom and about what has been sacrificed for them would change, he did it so that they would have the freedom to come to that understanding on their own. 
Romans tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, it was not when we were at our best. It was for us when we were at our worst. He sacrificed for us when we were still enemies of his. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying that our lives should be an appropriate response to the incredible love and mercy and sacrifice of Jesus. Obedience is not a recipe for salvation. It is a response to it. Obedience is not a recipe for salvation. It is a response to it. It's not we got to do this so that we can earn salvation. It's that salvation has been given to us by the grace and mercy of God, and so we obey. We obey God because we trust God. There's the famous hymn that says, trust and obey, but for some Baptists, we just say, obey and obey. But we trust and obey, and we trust because he's shown us that he's worth trusting. I'm simplifying this, but the reason he's worth trusting is because of his authority and his love. His authority, which is, which is demonstrated in creation and the sustaining of creation in the proving of his word and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his love, which is demonstrated in his never-ending mercy that we know continues to pursue us and in the death of Jesus Christ. And so because of his authority and love, we trust him. I love in the 10 commandments, which are, definitely the 10 most influential rules that have ever been given in the world that a lot of people know, even if they don't know much else about the Bible and memorize, when God gives them to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, verse two, before he says, thou shalt not have other gods, thou shalt not kill all that, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And then he says, obey. He says, I have authority and I have saved you. Now obey me. All commentators seem to touch on being citizens of heaven when they explain what it means to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you're a citizen of any nation which you want to be a part of, then it is a privilege. There are certain rights and privileges that come with being a part of that nation. And there are certain things that we do because of those privileges that we're been, we've been given. And I think when we think about being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we need to think not of somebody who was a natural born citizen, but somebody who chose and was granted citizenship and the gratefulness they have for that. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, not by birth, but by the adoption through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is living with a grateful heart for the fact that that has been given to us. Paul says, this is who we should be. This is how we should live. And he says to the Philippians, that's how you should live, whether I'm there or not. Look at verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. You aren't doing this for mama or grandma or your wife, or your friends, or your spiritual leaders. You're doing this for Jesus. Look, you can do a pretty decent job of making people think you're living for Jesus. You could come to church and dress the part and do the things. 
You can post the selfie on Instagram and Facebook with scripture in the back saying it's all about Jesus, even though it's a selfie and it seems all about you. But anyway, that's another thing. You can make that Christian girl think you are all about Jesus. But character is who you are when no one is watching. Character is who you are when no one else is watching. Character is I'm doing this because of Jesus Christ. Not because he'll get you, but because he has you. Because he's bought you. Because you belong to him through his mercy and his grace. That's character. And so what Paul has told the Philippians is to live as Christ and to die is gain. And that's all he's saying, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. For us to die is gain, so live worthy of that because dying is gain because of what Christ has done through us. And so having established that, Paul gives us here in this text three attributes worthy of the gospel, three attributes worthy of the gospel. So what it means by, here's what I mean by that, what it means to live our life in response to Christ and what he has secured for us. And you will see these are things you just can't fake until we make. So number one, we see unity with God's people around his mission. Unity with God's people around his mission. Paul uses two phrases in verse 27 that give great illustrations for this. The first is that you are standing firm. You can see that right there in Philippians 1 verse 27, that you are standing firm. That's a military term. It means to defend something. Paul is saying that you are to stay strong and living for the gospel and living for Christ. Don't move away from being about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't drift into legalism, liberalism, whatever it may be. Stay in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other phrase that he uses is striving side by side. See that again there in verse 27. This is an athletic term. It means that you're moving towards the goal. You're advancing the mission. As athletes will train and discipline themselves and then work hard and cooperate as a team towards a goal, he's using that imagery. So Paul gives us encouragement to not move away from the gospel while at the same time advancing the gospel. So we're standing firm in what the gospel is, but then we also wanna carry on the gospel to more people. Paul uses two words to clarify what it means to be unified around the mission. He says in verse 27, in one spirit. So we're standing firm in one spirit. Now, when Paul says in one spirit, does he mean spirit as an expression of the feeling of unity? Or does he mean to say that the Holy Spirit is what binds us together? Yes. Because there is this feeling that we get when we are unified around a common objective and common purpose and common vision. And so it kind of works in us and binds us. And, And we know this because he also says one mind, if you see there in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So we are thinking about the same goal. We are thinking about the same purpose. We are thinking about the same vision. And so there is this feeling, this spirit of unity. But yeah, that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's who, that's who gives us that. And so if we're spirit-led, we as the people of God are listening to the Spirit and the Spirit of God gave us the Word of God. 
And so we're always going to the word of God to make sure we are listening to the spirit of God. And we also have been given the church. And under the authority of the word of God, by the power of the spirit of God, God speaks through the people of God. And so we ought to be people who are in tune with the spirit, under the authority of the word, in mutual submission, partnered together as the church. We are standing firm in the gospel. We're not being taken away from what the gospel is. We're striving side by side to advance the gospel. We are one spirit in that, and we have one mind in that. And to be clear, what we're going for, what the objective is, is is said here in verse 25. He says, for the faith of the gospel. We're united. Faith is a word that means to be united to. We're united to the gospel. So if we think about uh, the military, if we think about teams, there are all kinds of things we do revolving around the why, the goal the purpose, the mission, the objective. And so here Paul says, the objective and unity around that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity with God's people around his mission. Now, can I just say this to our church? I think we're pretty good at the standing firm in the gospel. I would, I would be very affirming of our church in general and saying, hey, we've said, hey, we believe the gospel and we believe the word of God and we're under that. But I would challenge us that I don't know that we're doing a great job of advancing the gospel in Niceville. That I don't know that many of us are trying to help people see they're created for God. And that being a good person and being a good parent doesn't save you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ saves you. And that our friends who might live good lives are living good lives headed to hell because they've never surrendered to Jesus Christ. They've never submitted to God. And may we be encouraged. Listen, church, as we celebrate all the things God is doing in and through our church and planting churches and spreading the gospel across the world, may you know God wants to save people through you. God wants to use you. Whether you're here two years because of the military or you've been here all your life. And we need to be unified around that. The second attribute worthy of the gospel mentioned here is trust in God when facing opposition. Trust in God when facing opposition. In verse 28, Paul says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And not frightened by anything or in anything by your opponents. Now, that word frightened is, is referring to an animal being st- startled. So when we, when we think about that, maybe we would think about a horse being startled. And so I was reading on horsehints.com, which is a thing, by the way, a website called horsehints.com. And um, it said, when your horse gets frightened of something, he or she begins to use the reactive side of their brain and becomes full of nervous energy. And so in that moment, what you must do is redirect that nervous energy. And, And it said, this is going to happen to horses at time. 
So embrace that and be ready for it when it comes and have a plan. Opposition is going to come. You will have opponents if you are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I need to take a moment and acknowledge this. Some of the opponents I've had are not because I was striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, but because I was arrogant and impatient, okay? So I recognize that. Maybe that's the case for some of you as well. If you're like, no, not me. It's definitely the case for you then. It's definitely the case for you. Maturity is caring more about the things that matter and less about the things that don't matter. It's realizing not to make a mountain out of molehill, but to care very much about the things that are incredibly significant. And for the Christian, it's realizing the gospel, the advancement of the gospel, to live as Christ, that's what matters most. That's the word. And we gotta fight to make sure that the gospel doesn't become distorted, that we don't begin to think that deeds save us or being a part of a political party saves us or, or being accepting saves us, but that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves us. And we have to realize this is our foundation. No matter how much culture pushes back against this, it's proven itself, and this is our foundation, and we must resolve to stay committed to that. Paul, Paul reminds the Philippians that there is a conflict for the spiritual condition of people in their town. Look at verse 30, the last verse here engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if you go back to Acts chapter 16, Paul is in Philippi, he's, he's preaching the gospel, he's reaching people, and there's this demon-possessed girl who can tell people's fortunes. She's a slave girl, and she is delivered. So now that she doesn't have this demon possession, she can't tell people's fortunes. And her owners can't make money off of her anymore. And when the gospel affects people's bank accounts, <laughs> they take notice. When it affects people's lifestyles, that's when there will be conflict. And if you are living for the gospel, there will ultimately be this distinction. Listen, if you're just trying to be a good citizen in our community, there might not be any conflict. Okay, unless you're on Concerned Citizens and Niceville Facebook page, and there's always conflict. But if you're just trying to be a good citizen, there might not be conflict. But if you believe the gospel and you believe people who you're around who are living good lives are going to go to hell and you tell them that, that you have to repent and trust in Jesus, there might be ended friendships and conversations. If we believe what the Bible says about marriage, then there might be moments where we have to say, I don't, I, I love you, but I can't support you in this. It's going to bring about conflict and, and we need to be ready and not frightened. I, I, I think we're okay by and large with a Christianity that matches conservative culture that might lose fidelity though to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our community. I am burdened for my community that a lot of professing Christians are okay 
with raising well-rounded kids and not as passionate about kids that are grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if our kids have great GPAs and are good at sports and have good manners, but have never surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that won't carry with them in judgment. Our children are not ours. They're not our trophies. They're God's. They belong to him. And the number one goal we should have for their life is that they live their life and surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if that makes us uncomfortable with where that may take them in life. And I feel like we are conformed to the patterns of this world. We say yes to whatever activity without any resolve to say, hey, maybe I gotta be committed to the Lord and his church and advancing the gospel. And what's happening is we're not transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're conformed to the patterns of this world, even if it's masked in conservative goodness. And churches will say in any culture, we wanna draw a crowd, not not all churches, but churches will say that. And so we're gonna avoid certain things, just talking about certain things to, to make the door wider coming in. And we're never gonna go there. And what that does is that doesn't make disciples of Jesus Christ. That just makes a bunch of people who get together, who are staying the same. And I'm not saying that God and his sovereignty and his goodness doesn't use it, but church, that's not our vision. That's not the vision we have here. Our vision, I think we can put it on the screen, is to do whatever it takes to lead people to believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who he's created them to be. Believe in Jesus. The Bible says to believe in Jesus, we have to repent and believe. It means we have to say, I'm not living for James Ross anymore. My life is for Jesus to belong to God's family. Listen, we don't really belong. I know people are welcome no matter what, but we don't really belong to God's family until we've been reconciled with our heavenly father. And that's uncomfortable, but it's true. And to become who God has created us to be means things have to change. And when we and God disagree about how we should spend our money and how we should spend our time and whatever it is, we go with what God says because he's whose vision we are living for. And if we live our lives this way, we cannot be frightened by the fact that people will oppose that. People will want us to live a different way and we can't be intimidated and we can't give in to peer pressure. And it matters, listen, it matters because if people aren't really willing to consider the Bible, then is Jesus really the Lord? And what we see here when we live for the gospel of Jesus Christ is that a distinction is made. Look at what Paul says, or sorry, let me, let me make that point. God makes a distinction between those who are on the path of destruction and those who are on the path of righteousness. God makes the distinction between those who are on the path of destruction and those who are on the path of righteousness. This happens and it's an apologetic. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. The wicked do not prosper forever. People who have set in their heart, I'm gonna live for myself, do not live for themselves forever. Psalm 7 says that, Psalm 73 shows that, other places. Conflict helps people see this. If you look at the passages on biblical conflict, conflict and church discipline, the point of holding people accountable is ultimately they need to get to a place where they realize I'm not doing what God says. 
In fact, in the part on church discipline, it says, hand them over to Satan. The point is not that God wants them to be with Satan forever, but God wants them to see, I'm living for Satan. I'm not living for God. And this is incredibly important because it shows people their need for repentance. That's why we can't avoid morality. We can't avoid the gospel because we need people to say, death can be gain in Christ, but you must trust in Christ. And Paul says it reveals, verse 28, your salvation. It's a sign of your salvation. When you're living for the gospel, when you're not frightened by your opponents, you're not intimidated by peer pressure, you're not conformed to the patterns of this world, it shows what God's spirit is doing in you. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says these words, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Most of us following Jesus won't ever bring about that. But here's what God is saying. If following Jesus even causes your life to be in danger, be more concerned with the one who holds your eternity in your hands than what this person can do for and to you. Now listen. The response here is not to go out and be like, yeah, you're all sinners and you're all going to hell. Because if we're being like Christ, it affects how we have those conversations. And, and what I am grateful for God's grace in my life is I, th- I, I think that he's growing this heart. If you think about the prodigal son in Luke 15, he's growing this heart of the father in me where the father is ready for the prodigal to come home. And the angry brother is looking at all the things the angry brother did wrong. And we shouldn't be like the angry brother if we have Christ. We should be like the father because we don't deserve the father's blessings in the first place. In a philosophical debate, Christian apologist asking for Marcus Aurelius and others to stop persecuting Christians said this, with us, on the contrary, you will find unlettered people, tradesmen and old women who though unable to express in words the advantages of our teaching, demonstrate by acts the value of their principles. For they do not rehearse speeches, but evidence good deeds. When struck, they do not strike back. When robbed, they do not sue. To those who ask, they give, and they love their neighbors as themselves. We are going to have opponents outside of the church and inside of the church if we're standing firm in the gospel and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But as we humbly follow the call of God on our life, we cannot let fear guide us. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. More than ever, we need conviction and faith. People who are firm about truth and direction, but gentle with people, we are trying to show that truth and lead in that direction. We have a lot of people who say, I will give everything up for God, And in a time when our country is as confused as ever about telling right from wrong, where people have more opportunities to connect but that are lonelier than ever, and when people have access to an unprecedented amount of information but are more confused than ever, we need men and women who are convinced that Jesus is God, that proclaim that truth boldly and show people what it means to trust in him even when there is uncertainty and fear attached to what he has called us to do. We need to trust in God when facing opposition. A third attribute here is hope in times of suffering. And I'm gonna go through this quickly because I feel like I've been talking about this for the last few weeks and you can go back and listen to those sermons. 
In verse 29, Paul writes, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul writes to the Philippians and say, Christ wants you to believe in him and you're going to suffer for his sake. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you. He's writing to the Philippians. But it is potentially you at some point. You need to understand that. A lot of people want a Christianity that says that no trial is gonna ever happen to us. That says God has a hope and a plan and a future for us, right? Not to harm us, right? But they don't know that Jeremiah 29 verse 10 says after 70 years, you're gonna be delivered. So there is a trial attached to verse 11. So your life is very likely going to be at some point, difficult as you follow Jesus. And how you feel about what I am saying is indicative of the vision that you are living for. Now glance with me at Acts chapter five and how the early church faced trial. In Acts chapter five, verse 40, it says, they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they were preaching the gospel and they're beaten for preaching the gospel and then they let them go. And look at verse, what verse 41 says. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They found joy that they suffered for the name of Jesus. And daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Frank Thielman says, the suffering which Paul speaks is suffering for the gospel faith, not suffering in general, and certainly not opposition to some personal agenda. We're not talking about surface level suffering. We're not even talking about neutral suffering that is difficult, but is a part of living in a fallen world. We're talking about when you suffer, when you face conflict, when you face opposition, because you're trying to live for Christ. And even in that, and I, can't, I, can't, I can't get you to see this. God does something. The Spirit does something. I'm just gonna read Romans chapter five and just pray that the Spirit of God would help this to come alive in our hearts. Romans chapter five, verse one through five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, when we suffer, we grow. It makes us more like Christ and it makes us hopeful. And the hope of Christ never disappoints. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul's saying, live that. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ, that Christ has bought you with a price and has secured your eternity. Live for that. Be unified 
around his mission, side by side, advancing the gospel while standing firm in the gospel. And when you face opposition, trust God. And even when suffering comes, have hope. Because the hope of Christ does not disappoint. We all have a vision for our lives. We are all living for something. Based on personality, maybe it's written down on the wall in our house or on our fridge, or maybe we've never articulated. But we're living for something. And for all of us, church really is a means to the security and advancement of that. And as we think about the vision for our church, we ought to remember that it's about living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ and not get sidetracked from that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who stood against the Nazi regime, was imprisoned and killed for his faith, wrote this. Every personality cult that is concerned with important qualities, outstanding abilities, strengths, and the talents of someone else, even though these may be thoroughly spiritual in nature, is worldly and has no place in the Christian community. The demand one hears so often today for priestly men, for powerful personalities, springs too often from the spiritually sick need for the admiration of people, for the building of visible structures of human authority, because the genuine authority of service seems unimportant. We are here to live as Christ, because collectively, we praise, as we sang just a moment ago, to die is gain. So as we talk about the future of our church and what God may be leading us to do, in every decision we must ask, is this Christ-like? Is this about Jesus? And is this about his kingdom? As the pastor D.L. Moody once said, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but at succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. We need to resolve to stand firm in the gospel and to strive side by side for the advancement of the gospel. When God brought me to be the pastor of this church, one thing I realized very quickly about this church family was how blessed we were with so many great families, great men and women of God. We were just a great family. And in the last several years, God has multiplied that. He has grown this church and, and brought so many great godly families. And I said to the church after getting here, how I see this is how I see my home. So I, I love my parents. I'm so grateful for uh, my upbringing, but we, were, we weren't really a Christian home. 
Uh, we really didn't go to church. We weren't church people till about my senior year in high school. And so, um, you know, I didn't have all that growing up. And, and Christy and I marrying each other, committed to the, the ways of the Lord, like we were grateful. And then I got to be a dad. I didn't, you know, my biological father, most of you know, we didn't really have a relationship. So I got to be a dad to my four children who we had uh, very quickly. Um, and it was just great. And I became burdened and said, and we had talked about this a lot. There are children out there who don't have this. And we can bring at least one into this and help give them this. And so that was part of why we fostered and eventually adopt two children. And so I say that to say, first of all, some of you are in the same boat as me. That wasn't planning on saying this, and you should really consider that. But okay, that was not the point. This is a great church. This is a great family. And there are so many out there who don't have this. Let's not compromise the gospel and let's advance it and let's bring them in. May that be our vision. Let's pray together. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, I pray now we would resolve to live as Christ and to die as gain personally. And if you've blessed us, we would ask, how might we advance the gospel with our lives? Show us. Help us to step out of our comfort zone and our security and the competing visions for our life and live for Jesus. Help us as a church family to trust you, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, even if it's church world, but to believe that you save, that you restore, that you renew, that you equip, that you empower, and just be laser focused on the vision of glorifying Jesus Christ together. God, I pray that if there's someone here they've never said, God, have your way. That they would recognize this morning that they don't need to do anything. You have done it all. Salvation is not something they earn. It's something you've given. And I pray that even though they know they are unworthy, I praise God for that and that they would cling to you and depend on you for salvation. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. May you be glorified in our response.